Psalm 131. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters, or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. This morning I want to teach you a few lessons from this psalm, the shortest psalm that has the hardest lesson to teach. As Spurgeon said, the shortest to read and the longest to learn. And it is truly that, and I can share maybe even some testimonies from our own life on the field. You know, it is quite easy to get discontented in life. Very easy living in this world to be discontented. My wife and I live in the southeast corner of a group of islands in Southeast Asia, and we have a very noisy rooster in our neighborhood. Now, I don't know uh, if you know how noisy a rooster can be. Uh, This rooster crows all day long. It does not understand morning, afternoon, evening, or night. And uh, I I come from a small town in India, so I'm used to noises in the night and in the day and uh, traffic and dogs in the house and cows and goats. And uh, I thought, what can one noisy rooster do? It ruined my sleep for almost a year until I said, I'm just going to get the noisiest fan and, make, and put this fan in my room, in our bedroom, and, and have this noise drown the noise coming from this rooster. And then I realized that my wife was freezing because we also had a wall air conditioning unit. And I said, you know what, I finally ended up getting a sound white noise machine, which makes less, more noise, less air. But you see what it takes to drown the outside noise just to get a peaceful night of contented sleep. But our proud self-will within us generates more noise in our minds than any supercharged rooster can do. And we need to cultivate godly contentment with childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that enjoys complete rest and security in the Lord and in trusting and obeying his word, rather than following the arrogant and ambitious approach to the needs and desires of our own hearts. Living our lives as disciples of Christ, as we come out of two difficult seasons and two difficult years plus of COVID, has brought a lot of discontentment in our lives. Just in our church, we have seen almost 22 people who died in the last two years, just in our church, in the, in the islands we live in. Sickness, masks, 
face shields. Can you believe it? We had face shields where we lived for almost a year and a half. So if you walked in the public, you had to wear a face shield in addition to a mask. There are so many reasons in this world that get us discontented. I'm not here to talk about them. Today I want to talk to you about the noise levels that come from within us in response to those factors and those reasons. And these noise can destroy our internal calm and joy and distract us from the purposes God has put in our lives. So how should you and I live considering the uncertainties we face in our lives? Are your past failures to overcome certain sins haunting you and causing you an internal noise of worry, irritability, hopelessness? How about anxiety, regrets, longings, fears? These also add noise to the levels of dissatisfaction within us. How about the noise your mind makes when you get too busy with life? activities, doing things, responsibilities, the cares and anxieties of life eat us sometimes. How do you drown the voice in your mind from your proud self-will? Today we will learn from David, a man after God's own heart, how to deal with our own prideful heart and how to be quiet on the inside. David will teach us what he has learned that true and lasting contentment comes from a growing and abiding trust in God. David has learned to be content, and he will challenge both you and I to cultivate godly contentment. So this morning, I'd like to bring to your minds three lessons we can learn on godly contentment from this short psalm. Number one, Godly contentment results in a life of humility. We see this truth in verse 1. This is the result of living a contented life. Number 2, godly contentment is learned from trusting Christ fully. This is the process of how we get contentment. That's in verse 2. And then finally in verse 3, godly contentment leads others to hope in Christ's coming. So these are the three lessons we're going to focus our time on this morning. The Psalms, as you know, is the ancient hymnal of Israel, and they focus on one central theme of worship. And worship being the personal response of a worshiper or a believer in the person and work of God. And as we come to Psalm 131, we realize that this psalm belongs to the fifth book, which has been collected and kept, the book number five, Psalm 107 to Psalm 150. Just look at the superscription on this psalm in your Bibles. It says, A Song of Ascents of David. And often when I go to churches and there's scripture reading, sometimes you forget to read that superscription. That superscription is also in the Hebrew text and ought to be read as the first verse. Now just turn back to Psalm 120 and just look from Psalm 120 to 134. This, this is a collection of 15 psalms which have very similar headings. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. 
121, a song of ascents. Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. 123, a song of ascents. Just look at the heading on the top. 124, a song of ascents of David. 125, a song of ascents. 126, a song of ascents. 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. 128, a song of ascents. 129, a song of ascents. 130, a song of ascents. 131, a song of ascents of David. And 132, a song of ascents. 133, a song of ascents of David. And 134, a song of ascents. So you can see this collection right from the heading in your Psalms. And tradition says that this collection of 15 Psalms was compiled by Ezra and put in the book of Psalms. And this song of ascents were the actual songs of worship sung by worshipers as they headed towards Jerusalem as the law of Moses instructed the men to do so in Deuteronomy 16.16. 16. Every Jewish male had to go to a place of God's choosing, which was the temple, three times a year to celebrate three key feasts without going empty-handed. So these are, you could say, if you go on a picnic with your family, these are the songs you would sing as you go towards your location in your picnic or maybe your long journey to a different city. Many of you know that Jerusalem is situated in a high elevation. So no matter from which direction you come, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So these set of 15 psalms are kind of congregational songs that are sung by Jewish pilgrims and their families as they go together in celebration of their faith in God as they make their winding path up to Jerusalem to worship. Paul Johnson, in his beautiful sermon on Psalm 131, said that these three annual pilgrimages to a higher place make a perfect metaphor for an upward direction of spiritual growth that celebrates the development of virtues that are produced as the natural fruit of faith in the life of a believer in God. So as we drop into Psalm 131, we are transported to a place in which you can almost feel the quietness of David's soul. Listen to what is happening in David's mind. Let me read this psalm again, and I'm going to read it a little slower. A song of a sense of David. Look at verse 1. O Yahweh, or O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Verse 2, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Did you notice in the first two verses, David is speaking to God? And verse 3, he's speaking to his audience. 
You can also see in verse 1 that David shares what he does not do. In verse 2, he shares what he has done in the past. In verse 3, what God's people should do. So the present in verse 1, the past in verse 2, and the future in verse 3. David Paulus, in his wonderful book, Seeing with New Eyes, gives us a great perspective on this psalm, and I thought it's worthwhile reading it. He turns the psalm into an anti-psalm. And here's how it goes. Self, my heart is proud, I'm absorbed in myself, and my eyes are haughty, I look down on other people, and I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I am restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. You can see how this anti-Psalm just tells you how we live sometimes our lives. So let's get to the first lesson on lasting godly contentment. Godly contentment results in a life of humility. You can see in verse 1, O Lord, he's addressing God, and he says three things he does not do. My heart, first he says, is not proud. The ESV says lifted up. And then he says, nor my eyes haughty. That's another word for pride. And then he says, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So David gives us three areas to examine in our lives from verse 1 to see if we are living in humility. Let's look at the first one. It's our attitudes. Our attitude. Living in humility requires that we free ourselves from pride in our attitudes. Look at the first third, verse 1. O oh Lord, my heart is not proud. The heart is the seat where pride finds its source. And verse 1 is a confession of David who has dealt with his prideful heart. You can see that we need to start with the root. If we don't start with the root, with our attitudes of how we respond to a prideful heart, we cannot get contentment. The heart, as we all know, is the seat of intelligent and reasonable decisions we make. It is one's inner self, the seat of our emotions, our will. And being proud means being exalted in your own eyes. In our own eyes, we focus too much on ourselves and have an arrogant attitude. And that results in a presumptuous activity that follows such an attitude. Now, why do we need to speak to the Lord? Why is David speaking to the Lord? Because only the Lord knows our heart, right? Our heart is beyond all things, Jeremiah said, deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Not us in our own wisdom, but unless we are taught by the Lord, by His Spirit, from his word. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. 
I want to show you an instance here of a nation which had this attitude, which had this exact attitude. Israel did not trust in Yahweh and were proud and presumptuous. They went to Egypt for help when the invading Assyrians came. So Isaiah chapter 30, and you can see it, and I'll show it to you. In the beginning, verse 1, it says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine. And make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. This is the Lord speaking. Who proceeds down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, the shelter in the shallow shadow of Egypt your humiliation. Move down to verse 7. So Isaiah 30, verse 7. Even Egypt, whose health is vain and empty, Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Further down to verse 9. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord. Here we see how a nation has refused to listen not only to God's plans, nor seek His direction, nor seek His wisdom, but end up going to another nation for help. Pride is the key sin of mankind, not only in unbelievers, but so much so in the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ too. Now how do you and I know if we lack humility or if you're not cultivating humility? Ask yourself, am I arrogant? Am I opinionated and argue with others loudly when they have a different opinion than I do? If you and I lack humility, we display a discontented attitude of our heart and we will constantly fight inner battles with pride as we will try and defend our pride and thus we will lack real peace within ourselves. David Paulison, again in his beautiful book, instruct us, instructs us to identify the ladders to nowhere. He calls them ladders to nowhere. That pride erects in our lives. And here he gives four key areas to watch for. I thought they were very practical. And here's what he says. Where do you raise up ladders of achievement? How do you go for victory, for grades, for promotions, for the big church, for the church that has a big Sunday school, for the idealized devotional life, or maybe even outdoor life? Where do you clamber up the ladders of acquisition? Where do you say, if only I had this? Where do you seek the good things of life, the security and the recognition? Where do you race up the ladders of appetite? Where do you gratify your needs for ease? For self-control? Where do you gratify hunger or your lust or your superiority? Fourthly, where do you scuttle up ladders of avoidance? 
Where do you get away from poverty, rejection, suffering, and people? Living in humility requires that we free ourselves from pride in our attitudes of our heart. And the second area that David will look at in the same psalm, Psalm 131, is the area of aspirations. Look at the second half, or the second third of verse 1. Nor my eyes haughty. Now he's looking at the eyes. The eyes are the, are the windows of the hearts to the world. So our heart looks through our eyes to aspire things for itself. What the heart desires to look for, what the heart desires, I'm sorry, the eyes look for. Haughty eyes is something God hates. Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19 is a good verse to turn to. And here Solomon writes, There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And the very first one on that list is haughty eyes. Eyes that look down on someone. A person with haughty eyes is not only arrogant, but also selfishly ambitious. The kind of ambition that is not a godly ambition of pleasing God that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, but a proud and presumptuous ambition. How do you know if you possess selfish aspirations? Just ask yourself, do I seek after elevated places where I may gratify my self-esteem? Do I look down on others as being inferior if it's based on color of skin, position in life, education. Charles Spurgeon had a beautiful quote on verse 1, and I quote him here. He says, when the heart is right, the eyes are right. The whole man is on the road to a healthy and happy condition. Let us take care that we do not use the language of this psalm unless indeed it be true as to ourselves. For there is no worse pride than that which claims humility when it does not possess it. A heart that is haughty shuts the door through which God's grace flows into our lives. In Psalm 138 verse 6, the psalmist writes, For though the Lord is high, which is exalted, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. God knows our heart. We must look at Christ. Let us pursue what God wants us to pursue. And let us pursue that with humility, without looking down on others. And then we will be on the right track to cultivate godly contentment. Remember, we should not think too highly of ourselves. Paul mentions this so many times. I just lost count as I was doing my work on this psalm. In Romans 12, verse 3, Paul mentions, and I just want to turn there really quick. Romans 12, verse 3, Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I think the trend in the way this grammar has been written is that we often do think highly of ourselves. And this is a warning given by the Apostle Paul not to think more highly of ourselves 
than we ought to think. That means we ought to have an attitude of humility. And then Paul writes, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Even in James, in James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 121, just a few, few pages before, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come from? Again, here you see a person who looks to God for help, not to his own heart. In our minds, we often link contentment with what we have, which in turn is based on what we can afford and what we can buy. Maybe we have forgotten Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, which says, Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor forsake you. You know, one of the lessons we learned in a country from which the Lord moved us to another country in Southeast Asia was we served there for about three and a half years. In the first year, the ministry grew. In the second year, we had to take care of my father, and he passed away. Ministry trials literally abounded from year one. And in the year three, my mom, who had dementia, whom we took care of, she passed away. And in year four, persecution came and we had to leave. One of the challenges my wife and I had to deal with is the sovereignty of God and his moving his people to wherever he wanted. I think we need to be content with Christ, not where we are, because God could move us. And I think that's a lesson I learned really well in this place of service. In Psalm 16, verse 11, by the way, Psalm 16 ties in beautifully to the psalm. In Psalm 16, verse 11, the psalmist says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. You know, we would learn to be content a lot more quicker if we are content with being with the Lord, being in agreement with his word, being willing to do what he wants us to do, rather than the things which we think we need that brings us contentment. So we must examine our life for our attitudes, our aspirations, and thirdly now in verse 1, our actions. This is the third phase of our pride. It begins in the heart, it sees things to its eyes and wants it, and then it ends up trying to get it. That's the third phase of our pride. Look at verse 1, at the end of verse 1. Nor do I involve myself in great matters, or with things too great, the ESV says, or in things too difficult for me. Humility is knowing who we are, knowing our capabilities, and knowing where we stand. 
often we must turn our eyes away from the distorted view of ourself to Christ. David here is saying that he, he was not speculative. He was not self-conceited. He was not opinionated. David had to wait 10 years after he was anointed king by Samuel, and Saul continued to reign in Jerusalem as the king of Israel. And then he waited for seven more years in Hebron before he sat on the throne of Israel. He was not ready to do what he wanted to do. His self-focused ways he put aside. And he sought what God would want him to do. Remember Saul and how he assumed the position of a priest when Samuel was late in coming? What a contrast to a man after God's own heart who waited for God's own timing. And here's Saul who did not wait for God's timing in 1 Samuel 13 verses 8 to 14. He was losing the battle against the Philistines, so he said, I'm just going to do what I'm not supposed to do. And God said, there you go, you lost your kingdom. Uzziah did the same in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. When his heart became proud and he entered the temple of the Lord, he did what his heart wanted him to do. He acted upon it. Ahaziah and 80 priests forbade him to go in to the temple, but he did nonetheless. And leprosy broke out on his forehead, and he died a leper. After Uzziah, his great-grandson, Hezekiah, struggled with a proud heart. Now what David is saying, he's not saying, is that we should, not, we should be unwilling to take on great things. He's not saying don't take on challenges. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do great things, is it? I don't think so. But here's what David is saying, that he does not go continually being busy with grand things that others characteristically are involved with. Now what are those great things which we could be involved with? Well, they're not explicit here in this psalm, but let me give you some thoughts, and you may connect with some of these. Things which lead to great advances in your personal agenda, maybe in your church, here, or in the workplace. Tackling things so that you can be at the center stage of life, of ministry. Making plans and acting and moving up on the social ladder, maybe with others in your place of work. Doing things or showing that you're busy with doing things in your pride doing things beyond your abilities or trying to be busy accomplishing things that are beyond your abilities. Now, not involving myself in great matters means not attempting to control another person's attitude or actions or choices. We don't control when we're born. We don't even control when we die. That's under God's sovereign purview. So what happens when we attempt to ensure that we don't get sick or we don't die? We become obsessed with maybe diet, exercise, or we get plagued by fear that some nagging pain might be the one that finally knocks us down. What happens when you and I get obsessed with getting people to like us? Do you and I accept the limitations God has put on us? You know, one of my favorite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
the secret things belong to the Lord, and the things that he has revealed, I'm paraphrasing, belongs to us. There are things we don't have the purview of knowing in our lives, and we ought just to trust in our Lord for that. Just look at our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. And you can please turn there in your Bibles. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8 actually is better. Here's humility displayed in the life of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll begin with verse 5 just for the context. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form or morphe of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the cycle of humility we see in Christ. He stepped down from God to be a God-man, from God-man to a common slave, from a common slave to a cursed man who died on the cross. Here's the chain of humility I think we all must cultivate in our lives of not thinking too high of ourselves. Even in the Gospels, Matthew 24, verse 36, don't turn there, but just listen, our Lord Jesus Christ displayed humility and contentment in his incarnation when he trusted in his Father's will by accepting its limitations, his limitations, because of his humanity, that he did not know the exact time of his second coming. But only God the Father did. But he emphasized to his disciples in that same context that they must be faithful, watchful, and focus on being prepared by trusting and obeying God. So the first lesson we learned today on lasting godly contentment is that godly contentment results, its result is a life of humility. Now we'll move to the second two rather quickly. Godly contentment is learned by trusting in Christ fully. Look at verse 2. The ESV says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now the New American Standard says, I have composed, instead of calm, the word is composed, and quieted my soul. So when we come to verse 2, we can see the logical progression of this psalm. We have already seen the destruction of our pride would cause issues in how we respond to our attitudes, our aspirations and desires. But now, David is moving to teach us about trusting in Christ. Trusting in God. And here's what I want you to see in this verse. Weaning. The word weaning. I did a study on weaning. I, you know, sometimes when you come across a word and you wonder, how is it used in the Bible? Well, just spend some more time and dig through the scriptures. And I found that biblically weaning 
typically began at the age three. And you could look at this some other time. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Hannah weans Samuel at that age. And then the end of weaning is generally celebrated as Abraham did for Isaac in Genesis 21, verse 8. A nursing child who is not weaned is not fun to watch. Have you ever tried carrying an unweaned baby that is hungry? You know, before a baby is weaned, when he's placed on his mother's lap, he squishes, squirms. He's in a heightened state of anxiety that he's not going to get what he really wants. He's waiting for his next drop of milk from his mother's breast. He frets and fumes and cries and fusses and squirms. Mother's milk means life for that little baby. Health, satisfaction, joy. And if his mother does not give him what he wants, his emotions go crazy. It gets noisy. Queening is the process of breaking the child's dependence upon his mother to to satisfy his desires. But once a child has been weaned, his relationship with his mother is a joy to watch. Because now it blossoms into a loving affection for his mother. Because now that weaned child knows that his mother knows when he needs to be fed and when he needs to be cleaned up. So he's not fussing on his mother based on what she can give him, but what she knows of what his needs are. Now this dramatic change has come And you can see a weaned child resting comfortably in his mother's arms. So here's the point David is making. You and I need to be spiritually weaned from ourselves. And we need to learn to trust in God. A weaned child needs his mother's nearness and affection. That is a mark of growth and maturity for a child. Do you think this has something to do with what Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 3? Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The point made by David in this phrase, like a weaned child is my soul within me. You can see two similes there in that verse. Verse 2, David is creating a picture for us to see. Just think of your own soul as a weaned, small baby sitting on your own lap before you were squirming inside as a small child, demanding things from God, inwardly pouting, displaying childlike anxiety because you didn't get what you thought God could give you, depression, anger, jealousy, discontent, and confusion. But now your soul sits still within you because it has learned to trust God and depend on God for its needs. You see, now there is a peace because your soul has reposed within itself. Internal strife is over because you have learned to trust Christ fully. Contentment has come regardless whether you have something or not, or regardless whether your desires have been met or not. So do you and I rest securely, satisfied and content in believing God's promises and accepting what God has given? Or do we 
run faster and faster, doing more and trying to have more and be more. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, he could have as much said, when I'm contented with God being at my side, then I'm strong. In Philippians 4.11, Paul again says, Not that I speak of being in need to this church in Philippi who constantly provided for his needs, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The emblem like a weaned child upon his mother is meant to illustrate to each of us the kind of quiet, secure, safe trust we need to have in our Lord Jesus Christ, as the psalmist has in Yahweh. To gain godly contentment, we must capture our desires, our fears and opinions and anxieties. And David did that in verse 1, and so can we as disciples in Christ do it today. So, can I recommend that we unplug the noise-making machine inside our hearts, in our aspirations, our pride, in our actions from our life? I'm not suggesting self-help or asking to beat up yourself for your past mistakes. No, no, no. I'm not asking you to do that. We need Christ. We need his help. We need his word of God to dwell in us so that we might be secure and safe and trusting in his sovereign purposes in our life. Contentment is basically learned quietness, regardless of what is happening outside of us. It's not the new age quietness which you learn by the world's system. It is a gift of God's grace. James 1.17 teaches us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Thirdly, the third lesson we can learn from this short psalm is godly contentment leads others to hope in Christ. Inner quietness, the world teaches us, is a retreat to self-centeredness. That's not what David is sharing here. Those who are content and trust in Christ encourage others to be secure in their faith in Christ. A contented person ministers to others and teaches them to hope in the Lord's second coming. Look at verse 3. Let us learn from David here. He says, O Israel, hope. That is a command there. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David is now pleading to God, to Yahweh, to bring Israel to a state of hope towards God, to himself. Why? Because in Yahweh, if you look at Psalm 130, verse 5 to 8, the few verses above in the context, what David is saying is, in Yahweh there is loving kindness and abundant redemption from them when the Lord removes their iniquities. Look at one, Psalm 130, verses 5. That's in the immediate context, and these psalms were put together for a purpose. In Psalm 130, verse 5, it says, I will wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. So it's not a hope which does nothing, but it 
I hope it perseveres in the word of God. My soul waits for the Lord, Psalm 130, verse 6, more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Exactly the same words used in Psalm 131, verse 3. And then the writer writes, For with the Lord there is loving kindness, with him there is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You know, there is a time when God is going to take care of his own people, Israel. He's going to redeem them, and he's going to deliver them. But this hope is not only in the future, as we saw in Psalm 131, verse 3. This hope is also has a present implication. This hope does not have an expiration date. We often think of hope as something in the future, but we forget that hope begins with the trust in the Word of God today. Look at what David says, from this time. He doesn't say always in the future. From this time, forth and forever. This trust in Yahweh is strengthened when God's people are obedient to His Word. Today, Psalm 131, verse 3 is an application. By application, extends to every nation, I believe, every tribe, tongue, and people who have put their hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope. And in His loving kindness, He has saved us and He has granted us redemption from our sins. We're now to put our hope in the Lord now and forever. God has made a way for us to be quiet in our souls like a weaned child, and that is not by putting our hope in this life, but putting our hope in Him and being faithful to Him. And thus we should look forward to His second coming, not to changes in our government or our situation. So, how are you and I doing? <laughs> Knowing that this psalm has done open-heart surgery on each of us. Have we looked deep into our own lives to see if humility marks a trait of how we respond to things? Have we learned that contentment is a process that comes from a life that is continually consecrated by trusting in Christ? Do we lead others to hope in Christ? Do we lead others to look to his word to bring hope to their souls? And do we look to his second coming? This road to lasting contentment is hard, but the destination is very rewarding. A few people know of the famous German hymn writer, Katharina Amalia Dorothea von Schlegel. In the 1700s, she wrote a hymn, Be Still My Soul. Many of you might know this hymn. It's an old hymn. It's one of the 29 hymns which she wrote and the only one that remains in common use. Let me read the words of this hymn and hopefully you might gain comfort by its words. Here's the words of this hymn, Be still my soul, be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change 
he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, your God doth undertake to guide the future as he has in the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall forever be with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last. Paul calls our life in this world momentary affliction. I think the Lord would not want us to lose our contentment by this momentary affliction in this life. One of the hallmarks of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is his constant or his, her constant trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what happens in every situation. Contentment comes from Christ. And today, if you're sitting here and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day you may repent from your unbelief in who Jesus Christ is. You know, years ago when I came to this country, I was not a believer. I was here seeking a higher education, a better life, a better wife, and life everlasting on United States of America. But the Lord showed me that it is my sin that has to be dealt with. And that sin can only be dealt with the Lord Jesus Christ, by him, by him paying for them on the cross 2,000 years ago. So today, if you're sitting here, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Scripture says, and you will be saved. Trust in him. Trust in him as the only one who can take away your sins. And this he already did. Let's pray as we close. Dear gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you are the true source of contentment in our lives. We live in a world that is constantly growing corrupt and rotting away. Help us to live each day this year with an unshakable, childlike trust and faith in you. Grant us a constant hunger for your word and the nourishment which we get as you minister your word to our souls. Stop the noise-making machine of our wills, our proud self-wills. And Lord, that you might give us joyful contentment regardless of our situation, not lacking but striving in your strength to please you and to be faithful to do what you have called us to do. And this we ask for our Lord and Master's sake. Amen.